If you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can turn or scroll to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. And as you're turning there, if there are any students who are visiting this morning, I want to assure you that this robe is not one of the things of the church that I'm going to be bringing to the college campus. It's much too hot for that, and I might get confused for a Hogwarts professor. (laughs) But you you still might be asking, okay, well, why is Weston wearing that this morning? Or maybe you've been coming to Trinity for a while, and you're not bothered by the robes thing, but you have wondered, why do they wear robes here? We're going to do something that Jesus often did. We're going to answer that question with a question. How do you know when a police officer is on duty? It's when he's wearing a uniform, right? When you see a police officer in a uniform, it indicates that you know, he's not just out giving people tips on how to make our community a better place. No, he is exercising the authority that has been given to him by the civil government. Well, this robe is a little bit like the uniform of a pastor. When you see me or Mitchell or Ryan wearing this robe, we're not just up here sharing our thoughts about God and life. No, we are exercising the authority that has been given to us by the church of Jesus Christ. And what is that authority? It's the authority to proclaim God's word to you. And so that's what I'm going to do now. And hence, I'm wearing the robe. But before we do that, let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Your word is what gives us life, and your word is what teaches us how to really live. And so I pray this morning that you would open our ears to hear your words. May they sink deeply into our hearts Would they change us? Would they change the way that we look at ourselves? Would they change the way that we look at you? Would they change the way that we live? But Lord, we know that that can only happen by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. And we pray all of these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. This is Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the podcasts that I have listened to off and on over the years is called This American Life. If you're not familiar with it, each episode is basically a a series of human interest pieces on a certain theme. And over the summer, I was listening to the Father's Day episode in which they told the story of a woman named Sandra Lowe who learns that a local grunge band has written a song about her father. Kids, can you imagine learning that a band had written a song about one of your parents. Well, this was confusing to her as well because the depiction of her father in this song was not at all in alignment with her own experience of her father. She grew up thinking that her father was a a very eccentric man. He was very strict, very miserly. He never allowed his family to celebrate Christmas. He never took them on family vacations. He did take them to the local beach, but that was to pick up discarded aluminum cans in exchange for spare change. And he also told all of his children that they needed to get PhDs in engineering lest they starve on the streets. But in this song, Sandra's father, Mr. Lowe, is presented as a, quote, symbol of freedom and introspection which both comforts the listener and poses profound spiritual challenge. So Sandra decides to interview this band, and to her surprise, she learns that this song is not, in fact, a joke. This band really saw her father as this profound figure, and she actually discovers that the band had written several songs about her father over the span of a decade. And at one point in the interview, um, she brings her father into the interview, And he starts doing one of those things that children would normally find just annoying about their parents. He starts randomly singing a Chinese folk song, which he has personally translated into French. And Sandra looks over, and she sees one of the bandmates crying. And after he finishes singing, he looks at the bandmate and and says, what, why, why are you crying? And the, the guy said, that was just so beautiful. It was this unhindered, true expression of something totally genuine. It gave me chills. Sandra commented, it's surreal sitting in a room full of young people who are hanging on to my father's every word. He's like an odd little guru, they his apostles. God knows he never got that from my sister or brother or me. Now you might be wondering, where is Weston going with this? Well, this story serves as a vivid example of how the same person can elicit very different responses from different people. And I'm sure that you have observed this in your own life, if not with one of your parents, then with someone else. Someone you may find very annoying, other people confusingly have deep affection for. Well, this phenomenon also happens with the person of Jesus. And no matter where you are spiritually this morning, I I want to suggest that you have experienced this. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you might be confused or even cynical about the fact that people around you make such a big deal about Jesus. Sure, 
he lived a beautiful life and he said some profound things, but for people to write songs about him and to even construct their whole lives around him, that seems a little excessive. That seems a little fanatical. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you have been for some time. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, but that belief seems a little stale to you right now. You look around and you notice that your faith in Jesus just doesn't seem as vibrant as others' faith in Jesus. Or maybe it doesn't even seem as vibrant as it did in your former self. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel a deep love for Jesus and you just ache that a close friend or family member can't understand why you love him. Why does this happen? Why do people respond in such different ways? Well, in this passage, we see this phenomenon playing out. And as we look at this story this morning, we're going to see two people respond very differently to Jesus. And we're going to take a look at their responses, and then we're going to see the reason for their respective responses. And finally, we're going to discuss the relevance for us today. So those are going to be our three points this morning, their responses, the reason for those responses, and the relevance for us today. So first, let's look at their responses. The first person that we are introduced to in this story is a Pharisee. And verse 40 tells us that his name is Simon. And Simon has invited Jesus over to a dinner party at his house. We're not explicitly told why Simon has made this invitation, but we can make a deduction. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has gained some notoriety. He has been going around to local synagogues and teaching. Crowds have been gathering to hear him in the open air preaching. And just earlier in chapter 7, he has been proclaimed to be a great prophet because of the miracles that he was performing. So Simon likely wants to personally investigate whether Jesus is the real deal. But Simon has offered this invitation with some suspicion. Internally, he comments in verse 39 that Jesus clearly isn't a prophet, which shows us that Simon's been skeptical of Jesus all along. But even more than just skeptical, Simon has been pretty cold and even unfriendly to Jesus. Jesus points this out in verses 44 through 46. He says that Simon has has not been a good host to him. During this time, when there were no paved roads or closed-toed shoes, a good host would have provided water for his guests so that they could wash their feet. And a good host would have also offered a kiss on the cheek to his guests as a sign of welcome, similar to how we might offer a hug or a hearty handshake today. And a good host also would have anointed his guests with olive oil to refresh their skin from the dry Palestinian heat. But Simon did none of those things for Jesus. So Simon's response to Jesus is suspicion, skepticism, and coldness. And that's contrasted with the second person in this story. We're not told her name. She's just identified by her reputation. In verse 37, Luke calls her a woman of the city and a sinner. And this is likely an indirect way of saying that she is a prostitute. And like Simon, she's also heard about Jesus. She may have heard his open air air preaching firsthand, or she may have heard about him secondhand from a fellow sinner. 
But either way, when she hears that Jesus is going to be at this dinner party, she heads to Simon's house. Now, during this time, houses were not as closed off as they are now. They were a little bit more open air. And thus, dinner parties weren't closed events. People could wander in and watch the action. So this woman goes and stands behind Jesus while he is reclining at table with Simon and the other guests. And people who reclined at table would have sat on a a low cushion or couch. They would have leaned on the table with their left hand and eaten with their right hand, and their feet would have been out behind them. So she goes and she stands over Jesus' feet. And she is just overcome by being in Jesus' presence, so much so that she starts to openly weep. And I want you to think for a moment about how awkward this would have been. Imagine that you are out to dinner with some friends, and someone who is clearly not an upstanding member of society walks up behind your friend and just starts weeping. You would probably think, "Uh, can we contain this situation? But this woman makes no effort to contain herself. In fact, she does just the opposite. She then takes down her hair, which is something that a proper Jewish woman would not have done in public. And she then wipes the tears that have fallen on Jesus' feet with her hair. She then kisses her feet, kisses his feet, and proceeds to break open a bottle of perfume and put it on Jesus' feet. And Jesus contrasts this response with Simon's in verses 44 through 46. He said that Simon didn't even provide water for Jesus to wash his own feet, but this woman provided the water of her tears and used her own hair as a towel to wash Jesus' feet. Washing feet was the job of the lowliest of servants because feet were so gross during this time. But this woman does that with tears of joy, showing her humility before Jesus. Simon didn't even kiss Jesus on the cheek, but this woman won't stop kissing Jesus' feet. Now, she's kissing Jesus' feet, which again is a sign of her humility, but she's kissing Jesus' feet, which shows her love for Jesus. Simon didn't even anoint Jesus' head with inexpensive olive oil, but this woman anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. This likely was the most expensive thing that she owned. And this shows her gratitude and her devotion towards Jesus. So to summarize, Simon's response to Jesus is suspicion, skepticism, and coldness. But this woman's response is humility, gratitude, devotion, and love. Why do these two people respond in such radically different ways? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the reason for their responses. And thankfully, Jesus helps Simon and us understand what lies at the heart of their responses. So look with me at verse 39. When Simon sees that Jesus doesn't shoo away this sinful woman, he thinks to himself, well, surely Jesus can't be a prophet. Otherwise, he would know that this woman who's touching him is a sinner. In their culture, a devout person would have avoided contact with a sinner because that would cause them to become ritually defiled. But did you catch the irony in verse 40? It says, And Jesus answering said to him, 
Simon internally concludes that Jesus can't be a prophet, and then Jesus reads in response to his thoughts as only a prophet could. And he tells Simon, I have something to say to you. At this point, we don't know what Simon was expecting to hear from Jesus, but he welcomes his personal address. And so Jesus tells this parable about a money lender and two debtors. One debtor owes 500 denarii, which was almost two years' worth of wages, and the other owes 50 denarii, which is about two months' worth of wages. Neither of them can pay the debt, and so the money lender cancels both debts. And Jesus asks Simon, which debtor will love the money lender more? And this question seems so obvious that Simon thinks it's a trap. He says, I suppose the one for whom canceled, he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it's not a trick question. You got it right. But then he takes Simon's understanding of this parable, and he uses that to illuminate the situation at hand. He says, do you see this woman? Do you see how she has responded to me? I'll tell you the reason why. Verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, this shouldn't be interpreted to mean that the woman's love was the cause of Jesus' forgiveness. No, the point of the parable is just the opposite. The one who is forgiven more loves more. And to make his point clear and a little more pointed, Jesus then states it inversely. He who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus says that our response to him is determined by how much we need his forgiveness. Our response to Jesus is determined by how much we need his forgiveness. And this makes sense. Because Jesus didn't come primarily to be a teacher. He came to be a savior. Jesus came in the world to save sinners by purchasing our pardon with his blood. And Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but, the sinner, but sinners. If you're not sick, you're not going to get excited about a doctor who offers you healing. No, you would be a little suspicious of him. Well, in the same way, if you're not a sinner in need of forgiveness, then you're not going to love a savior who offers you grace. But here, we should ask, is Jesus implying that Simon the Pharisee actually needed forgiveness less than this sinful woman? Well, considering Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees elsewhere in the Gospels, I think it's reasonable to conclude that's not what's happening here. No, I think it's better to understand this as a subtle confrontation of Simon's self-righteousness. Jesus is indirectly saying to Simon, you don't love me as much as this woman because you don't think you need as much forgiveness as this woman. Now, why would Simon think that about himself? Well, because he's a Pharisee. And if you have been around church for a while, that, that word probably has a little bit of a negative connotation for you. But to their credit, the Pharisees cared a lot about keeping God's law and doing the right thing. They cared so much about it, in fact, that they created all of these extra rules to make sure that they would never even come close to breaking God's law. The problem was their focus on doing the right thing blinded them to the fact that sin 
is more than doing the wrong thing. Sin is more than breaking the rules with our behavior. It's more than outward immorality. No, sin is a matter of our hearts. Jesus teaches us this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's not just murder that's a sin, it's hating your brother in your heart. Where it's not just committing the act of adultery that's a sin, it's lusting after someone who's not your spouse. And this makes sin a lot like an iceberg. I'm sure that you have seen one of those pictures or diagrams that that shows that an iceberg has a little bit visible above the surface of the water. But most of the iceberg actually dwells beneath the surface of the water. Well, in the same way, the sin in our lives that's externally visible is just the tip of the iceberg. No, most of our sin dwells beneath the surface of our lives. And Simon was only focused on what was above the surface. And this woman had a lot of iceberg showing, we could say. Her sin was very visible and very public, so she and everyone else around her knew that she needed a lot of forgiveness. And consequently, she responded to Jesus with gratitude and joy and love. But Simon, with all of his rule-keeping, had very little iceberg showing. And consequently, he responds to Jesus with indifference. So we should go back and amend our our earlier statement. Our response to Jesus is not actually determined by how much we need forgiveness. Our response to Jesus is determined by how much we think we need his forgiveness. That is the reason for these different responses in this story. So finally, let's talk about the relevance of this story for us today. And I first want to discuss the relevance for those of you here this morning who might be a little skeptical of Christianity. We're really glad that you're here. And I would be curious to know what you would say is your biggest issue with Christianity. Maybe it's the existence of suffering and evil. Maybe it's the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Maybe you just don't think you need God in order to live a happy life. Well, Jesus seems to be saying in this passage that those things may not actually be your biggest obstacles to accepting the claims of Christianity. No, your biggest obstacle may actually be that you don't believe that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Now, you might immediately be thinking, okay, guy in a robe, you don't know me. I mean, yeah, I know I'm far from perfect, but all things considered, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not accusing any of you of being immoral. You may be incredibly kind and generous and hardworking. You may be well-respected by all of your peers. You may give of your time and your money. You may be the kind of person that I would love to have as my next-door neighbor. But remember what we said, that most of our sin lives beneath the surface of our lives. And so we should ask ourselves, what is it that is motivating our morality? Why do we try to be a good person? Sure, we want to do the right thing. We want to contribute to the common good and help people, but aren't there some other motivations as well? Isn't it also true that we want to look good in front of others? That we want to feel good about the kind of person that we are? That we want to 
create a certain life for ourselves. And aren't those pretty selfish motivations? You see, our efforts at being a good person can, in reality, be ways that we are living for ourselves. The author Harrison Scott Key tells a story about a time that this hit home for him. When he was about 12 years old, he walked to a church that was near his home on a Sunday morning. And he sat in Sunday school where the teacher brought in a blind boy named Willie. And at the end of the Sunday school class, the teacher asked if someone would be willing to take Willie to the sanctuary for worship. And Key immediately volunteered because, quote, I liked helping people, especially when others noticed me helping. Problem was, he was so busy noticing everyone else noticing him that he didn't notice the floor-mounted water fountain into which he walked Willie face first. And he writes that in that moment, something had ruptured, come unmoored deep inside of me. The demon of pride let loose and made visible. Willie had broken his nose, and I had fractured my enduring belief in the unsullied purity of my intentions. It would take me years to understand this, but the understanding began in that church hallway that a good person is a temporary and imaginary creature. Because the best of us are often the worst, full of proud and viperous snakes, believing ourselves to be God. In that last sentence, key names that when we live for ourselves, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. John Stott says this is the essence of sin. It is substituting ourselves for God. And when we start to think of sin this way, it is a lot easier for us to see that we are all great sinners in need of great forgiveness. And you know what? It's okay to admit that. Because forgiveness is on offer. When Jesus told this parable to Simon, he wasn't only confronting Simon's self-righteousness. He was also offering him the same forgiveness that this woman had received. And that forgiveness is on offer to all of us here this morning as well. Second, I want to discuss the relevance for those of you here this morning who are feeling weighed down by guilt or shame. Maybe you feel like this sinful woman and your failures in life are on display for everyone to see. Or maybe you feel like you are living a double life where everyone else thinks your life is bright and shiny and new, but you know that that's all an act. Either way, you're acutely feeling your need of forgiveness, but you may not be responding to Jesus like the woman in the story. But what is keeping you from going to him and experiencing the same joy that this woman did? Do you think that you're not good enough to call yourself a Christian? Well, forgive us Christians if we've given the wrong impression, but that's not what Christianity is about. In fact, the one qualification for being a Christian is knowing that you're not a very good person. Or do you think that your sins are, are too great or too many to receive forgiveness? Well, look at this sinful woman. She was a prostitute. Jesus actually names in verse 47 that her sins are many. But then in verse 48, he declares to her, your sins are forgiven. Or maybe you think, yes, yes, I know that Jesus forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. 
Do you realize that that statement denies that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins? But that is the very authority which he claims for himself in this passage. And that is why everyone at dinner was so shocked when he declared this woman's sins forgiven. And if you think about it, it is a pretty presumptuous thing for Jesus to say. Ostensibly, this woman's sins weren't against Jesus. It would be sort of like if Mitchell and Ryan and I were all hanging out, and Mitchell and Ryan got into a little bit of an argument, and Mitchell just reeled back and punched Ryan in the face. And then I look at Mitchell and say, Mitchell, I forgive you. Ryan would say, Weston, that's pretty nice of you, but forgiveness is not really yours to grant in this situation. Well, in the same way, Jesus can't rightfully make that declaration unless all of our sins are against him. And as God in the flesh, that's exactly the case. All of the ways that we live for ourselves are an offense to Jesus. He is the offended party, and therefore he has the authority to offer pardon. And that's what he does. And all we have to do to receive that forgiveness is to believe that Jesus can and does give it to us. Look what Jesus says to this woman in the final verse. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We actually have more reason to believe that Jesus can forgive us of our sins than the sinful woman. Because now we know how Jesus secured that forgiveness. He gave up his life on the cross to receive the penalty for our sins. He received God's justice so that we might receive God's grace. So if you are feeling weighed down this morning, faith in Jesus can give you peace of conscience. Because Jesus gives us peace with God. Third, let's discuss the relevance for those of you here this morning who are just trying to faithfully follow Jesus. You know that that we as Christians are supposed to grow in our love for the Lord. We're supposed to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But how does that happen? Well, this passage tells us that the way that we grow in our love for Jesus is by growing in our understanding of how much we have been forgiven. And this means that growth in the Christian life requires a growing awareness of our sin. And that might seem a little counterintuitive. We might assume that growing as a Christian means that we're going to see ourselves become better and better people. But if we see ourselves as better and better people, then that means we will feel our need of grace less and less. And according to Jesus' math, that means that we will love Jesus less and less. On the other hand, when we see our sin more and more, we will feel our need for grace more and more, and thus we will love Jesus more and more. This is why the theologian J.I. Packer says that all real spiritual growth is downward growth into greater humility. But becoming aware of our sin is uncomfortable. It makes us feel yucky, right? So most of us do the best we can to avoid it. And we all have different ways that we do that. We can distract ourselves 
with work or hobbies or with endless media. Like recently, uh, my two and a half year old daughter, Emma, had a little bit of a meltdown and I did not handle her toddlerness very well. And so after she was calm and contained, I flopped down on the couch and I pulled out my phone and I just started to scroll because I didn't want to deal with my failure as a father in that situation. Now, I'm sure none of you have done anything like that before. But if it's not distracting ourselves, then we can, we can numb ourselves to our sin with, with food or drink or with retail therapy. Or we can ignore and cut off people who say things to us that we don't like to hear. But whenever we avoid an awareness of our sin, we are avoiding opportunities to grow in our love for Jesus. And so if you're a Christian who has faithfully showed up to church this morning, but you're just feeling a little blah about Jesus, maybe what you need is some self-examination. And here are a few suggestions for you to try. When you sit down to read your Bible, try not to quickly just check it off the list and move on to the next thing. No, linger over it. Meditate on it. See yourself reflected in God's word. As you read scripture, let it read you. Or when you stop and pray, aim to pray more than your request to God. Now, give space for confession as well. And not just confession of those obvious and external sins, but also those sins of the heart. And if you're not sure where to start, you can ask God to reveal your sin to you. And in a similar vein, you can also invite a friend to ask you some tough questions or to speak some hard truths into your life. And whenever the Spirit does convict you of sin, don't shy away from it. No, embrace it. Now, embracing it does not mean wallowing in it. God never wants us to wallow in our guilt. He wants us to revel in his grace. And whenever we see our sin, we should look it square in the face and then look at Jesus. The old Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. And in particular, look at Christ on the cross. Because on the cross, we see how much we need forgiveness. But on the cross, we also see how amazing is his grace. Jesus had to die for our sins, but Jesus was glad to die for our sins. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we see that we have been forgiven much, and so we will come to love Jesus much as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God who speaks peace where there is no peace, that you are not a God who sugarcoats things, but you tell us the truth. You tell us the truth about ourselves, that we are in desperate need of forgiveness. But Lord, you offer us that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would hold on to both of those things. May we be able to admit when we have done wrong, when we have lived for ourselves, when we are in need of forgiveness, 
But may we also believe in your abundant grace that where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. And may that give us the peace that we long for. We pray all of these things in the name of the one who is our peace, Jesus Christ. Amen.